From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitakuzwara and Newsday columnist Dan Raviv. Welcome, Patsy and Dan. Pleasure to be with you, Kim. Real pleasure. Well, here are the issues. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told a unique gathering of military leaders in Germany that Ukraine's resistance has brought inspiration to the free world and even greater resolve to NATO. He also says that Russian President Vladimir Putin never imagined that the world would rally behind Ukraine so swiftly and surely. The U.S. promised to steadily reestablish its diplomatic presence in Ukraine in a new signal of Western support. Russian energy giant Gazprom says it has halted gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria over the country's refusal to pay for supplies in rubles. The firm said services will not be restored until payments are made in the Russian currency. French President Emmanuel Macron won re-election to a second term, making him the first French leader to be re-elected in 20 years. His victory is viewed positively within the White House, particularly because a change in French leadership could disrupt Biden's effort to maintain unity on the U.S. and European response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Days after the New York Times released audio of U.S. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy weighing a suggestion that then-President Donald Trump resign, which McCarthy had previously denied, few Republicans appeared to take issue with it. House Democrats held a hearing on Supreme Court ethics and the possibility of impeaching justices, a move that follows the revelation of controversial text messages from Jenny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. Tesla CEO Elon Musk and Twitter's board agreed on a deal that Musk acquire the company at $54.20 per share in cash. Musk said in a statement that he wants to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features. Well, those are the issues and let's get started. Well, the United States said the world was galvanized against Russia's two-month-old invasion of Ukraine as it hosted more than 40 countries for defense talks in Germany that sought to speed and synchronize the delivery of arms to Ukraine. So, Patsy, what does the U.S. and its allies hope to accomplish at this point for Ukraine? So essentially, there are two tracks that's going on. The first one is the military track, you know, and as you can see, as you mentioned, this is truly the first of its kind summit that's conducted outside of NATO and the UN. And there's a whole bunch of military commitment of all these weaponry, anti-aircraft systems, armored vehicles from about 40 nations uh, that are making pledges to support Ukraine. And that's certainly welcome for the Western effort to contain the Russian invasion. And on the other track is the diplomatic front that the U.S. and European allies are still also pushing in terms of providing Vladimir Putin, even though at this point it doesn't seem very realistic. The longer we go into this conflict, the deeper dug in he is to go on a diplomatic off-ramp. However, one thing that I need to underline here is that when President Joe Biden or his officials are talking about the world uniting behind Western efforts to contain Russia, it is still mostly Western allies. There's very strong, solid support in Ukraine, but there is not as much support beyond Europe, for example, 
out in the Indo-Pacific, we still have important partners like India that's still on the fence in Southeast Asia. The ASEAN is still split. Even in the UN, as you can see, the latest UN uh, General Assembly resolution against Russia to kick Russia out of the UN Human Rights Council, there are 58 countries that's abstaining. So it's not as you know black and white as some may make it to be. Well, let me just ask you, Patsy, if I can, because you broke the news that even looking ahead to this coming November, when there's a big group of 20 summits, the United States would want Ukraine to be there, would not want Russia to be there. But what about the planners of that summit? Yeah, so this is a really interesting story. So what happened was President Vladimir Zelensky tweeted that he had spoken to Indonesian President Joko Widodo and claimed that he has been invited to the G20 summit. It's still a long ways off in November. However, it's been the issue, right, the focus between the West and the rest of the members of the Economic Forum, which is the 20 largest economies in the world. President Joe Biden since March has said that Russia needs to be kicked out of the forum or if the G20 doesn't agree to do that, at least Ukraine should be invited as an observer. And there's been intense Hence, Western pressure from the West to Indonesia as president of the G20, as well as host of the summit this November, to do just that. However, Indonesia, as well as other middle powers of the group, they have deep relations. They have deep ties with Russia. I mean, there was news just a couple of weeks ago about Indonesia considering to buy Russian oil, circumventing Western sanctions. So this is emblematic of Russia's considerable geopolitical influence around the world. So Jakarta is completely stuck in the middle. And as of my writing of this story, Jakarta still has not confirmed that it is inviting Volodymyr Zelensky to the G20 as the Ukrainian leader have claimed. So this is a really interesting story. And it's really emblematic of, as I said, the split between the rest of the world about how they view the Russian invasion and how much they should push against it. Now, Patsy and Kim, you know, we were talking about the American Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, right, convening a big meeting in Germany. And basically it was an anti-Russia meeting, how somehow to stop the war in Ukraine. And that was just a few days after Defense Secretary Austin and America's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, had gone to Kiev. And of course, their trip was in secret. But again, President Zelensky of Ukraine had told reporters that Austin and Blinken would be coming. But still, they managed to go there safely, apparently a long train ride in and out using uh, Poland as the way station along the way. Of course, it was really symbolic. I mean, the U.S. and Ukraine have had a lot of talks. Ukraine is receiving many many weapon systems from the U.S. and its NATO allies. But here was the Biden administration saying that it absolutely takes Ukraine's side. And to me, a key quote from Defense Secretary Austin after that visit to Kiev was that the goal is to leave Russia's military weakened. So not only that Russia lose this war in Ukraine, but over the long run, Russia be weaker. In addition, Blinken also informed Ukrainians that President Biden He's going to be naming Bridget Brink to be the ambassador to Ukraine. She's a career diplomat who is currently the ambassador to Slovakia. So how is this going to help Ukraine's present situation? Well, during a war, symbolism means a lot, right? Ukraine and Ukrainians want to feel that they have 
at least the Western world on their side. And of course, Ukrainians want to believe that Russia will eventually pull back. And with the weapon systems that the United States has sent, including the howitzer, long range, very accurate artillery pieces, also the capability to shoot down more Russian aircraft. Those are just examples. The U.S. and other Western countries reopening their embassies in Kiev. That's a big goal that Ukraine has. And the U.S. may not be quite opening the embassy, but sending diplomats and having them in Kiev, it's a major show of support. Yeah, I just want to know on the military front, just the amount of money that is pouring out to Ukraine. Congress has approved $13.6 billion. Over $3 billion of it has been spent. And President Biden is asking for more from Congress and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is already signaling that they will approve it. So it's mind boggling, number one, the amount of money that's being approved and being spent with all this military hardware that's moving at a really rapid speed. Right. I mean, I don't really have a granular knowledge of how military procurement works. I mean, I can't imagine all this stuff is just sitting in a warehouse somewhere somehow, but it seems to be moving at a really fast speed to help the Ukrainians and to be very strategic in its pivot. For example, when Russia moved its conflict away from Kiev and towards the Donbass region, the Biden administration immediately changed the weaponry that they're sending to Ukraine to adjust to the terrain, to adjust to the tactics on the ground. So it's just incredible that all this money is being spent very quickly, but also at the same time, we have to question at what cost of other U.S. foreign policy goals. For example, the U.S. as of this point is still getting zero dollars out of the five billion dollars that it requested for its global pandemic response. So a lot of this Ukraine stuff is really sucking out the oxygen out of all the other aspects of U.S. foreign policy, including global COVID pandemic response. Yes, it's a very good point. And also another aspect of what Russia is doing, their energy giant Gazprom says it has halted gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria over the country's refusal to pay for supplies in rubles. Now, this threat has been seen as an attempt to boost the ruble, which has been hit by Western sanctions. So is this move just about economics on Russia's part? No, I don't think so. Russia is trying to divide the Western countries, hoping, for instance, that Poland and Bulgaria might actually decrease their support for Ukraine. So I think that an aggressive party in this war, that would be President Vladimir Putin, on the diplomatic side, if you will, of the war, is absolutely trying to divide and conquer. Germany will be the big question. Germany and its industries really depend on energy from Russia. And if Russia shuts off Germany before Germany stops buying energy, from Russia, it could be very divisive as the uh, people of Europe wonder if they can get along with much higher energy prices. Poland's deputy foreign minister, he says that the country could cope without Gazprom's gas and had taken some decisions many years ago, he says, to prepare for such a situation. And meanwhile, world leaders and citizens alike, they watched very closely as French voters elected President Emmanuel Macron to a second term, much to the relief of many European leaders and allies as the war continues to rage on the continent's east. So what does this win mean for the U.S.? So I think, number one, the biggest impact would be that Macron remains an ally for 
Joe Biden as he continues to galvanize and rally Europeans against Putin. Macron is a really, really important ally. In fact, he has been criticized as neglecting his own presidential campaign because he's been so busy focusing on Russia. So that's number one. So that's a sigh of relief for President Joe Biden and his team and his security, national security team. The second one is perhaps some sort of wishful thinking, perhaps on the part of President Joe Biden, considering his own low ratings in the poll. When Macron won re-election, Ron Klein, White House Chief of Staff, tweeted that he won at a time when his approval rating is 36%. Hmm, Klein tweeted, an interesting observation, just FYI, as if implying that, you know, if Macron can win at such low approval ratings, then so can Joe Biden, who is right now suffering from ratings blues low 40s, upper 30s, and at the time when there's more polls that are pointing to the fact that perhaps there's a surge of support towards Donald Trump. So this makes for interesting political speculation domestically in the U.S. Well, Patsy, I agree there was a lot of relief in the Biden administration and among other members of the Democratic Party that Macron was the winner in France, mainly, I think, because Marine Le Pen, the candidate of the far right party, was the opponent in the runoff. But on the other hand, there are liberals, progressives in the Democratic Party here in the U.S., who are concerned that she got 41% of the votes. So I agree with you, uh, they're feeling a little bit better that if Donald Trump runs for president again in two years, they think that a liberal progressive, maybe Joe Biden, can beat Donald Trump based on this French result. But they're concerned at the rise of the anti-immigrant right in a country like France. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then here's another interesting polling development that we should keep an eye on is that there's this poll from the Harvard Caps Harris poll uh, released recently that says 58 percent of American voters said that they were open to supporting a moderate independent presidential candidate in a contest between Biden and Trump. So there may be somebody else coming out of the woodworks, you know, between now and 2024. We'll see. But of course, the election is far away. What's coming up next is the midterms. And I think that will also be a litmus test, right? I mean, to see whether the candidates that are supported by President Donald Trump actually does well, because if they do, then that may signal Donald Trump to enter the race again. Very good points that you all brought up. It's time now for a quick break. And when we return, a look at the latest developments stemming from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitta-Kuzwara and Newsday columnist. Dan well, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's caught on tape consideration of asking President Donald Trump to resign after the Capitol attack has many lawmakers talking. However, House Republicans are largely shrugging it off. So as we look ahead to midterms, can the GOP or should the GOP shrug this off? 
When Americans look at the revelation in the past week or so that Kevin McCarthy, who would be the Speaker of the House if the Republicans win control of the House of Representatives, had said one thing in January of last year and then denied saying it. And then it turns out there was tape that the authors of a new book have. I think it's embarrassing. But, you know, frankly, if you're a Democrat, you know, you're happy that, uh, as they put it, McCarthy's caught in a lie. But Republicans say that's not the issue and they feel confident that in the midterm elections this coming November, American people will look at high prices, the continuing problems of how to handle COVID, you know, and other problems that voters generally think about more. And that's why I think Republicans are shrugging it off. Yeah, I agree with Dan. I mean, this latest episode with Kevin McCarthy, even though he clearly is caught in a difficult situation, and then when he was asked by reporters, his answers were literally does not make any sense. But again, the American population is so polarized already, so dug in. And, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're going to vote for a Democrat. If you're a Republican, you're going to vote for a Republican. And then the independents are really the ones in the middle that would-be candidates have to win. So at this point, there's really not much that people can do or say that may change the American public's mind about January 6th and about President Donald Trump because they are just so dug into their positions. Just a quick mention that the House committee that is investigating the assault on the Capitol building in January of last year does plan to have hearings on television sometime in the next month or two. And frankly, Democrats are hoping that there the Americans will see something that will turn them off to Donald Trump and other Republicans. Yeah, but I also wonder about that, though, Dan. I mean, that's a really good point. It's going to be televised and there's going to be a lot of coverage on it. But the people, the American people are going to be either watching it on CNN or watching it on Fox News who will spin it, you know, with their own angles. And so their viewers may just remain focused on whatever it is that their chosen media might want to focus. So there's just really just such a division and polarization among American public and politics right now. And another aspect of this House Democrats exploring this possibility of impeaching Supreme Court justices, and this is stemming from text from Jenny Thomas. She is the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about the 2020 presidential election and the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. This seems like it's just not going to go away. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't think that that effort is going to go anywhere either. You have a Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas, who's been there for decades. His wife, Virginia or Ginny, is known to be a conservative activist. And yes, there's new information that she perhaps was supporting the people who invaded the Capitol building last year. But for the Democrats to say, therefore, they have to remove the Supreme Court justice. No, I think that's excessive. And will Thomas, in fact, recuse himself, step back from some cases? It's totally up to him. So I don't think he will. Yeah. And let me just add that there's in the entire U.S. history, there's only been one Supreme Court justice that has ever been impeached by the House of Representatives. And that is Samuel Chase in 1804. But he was not convicted by the Senate. So, you know, there's not a lot of precedent to this. And as Dan said, it may be just a bridge too far. 
Yes, I wanted to move on now to get our last couple of topics in. Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion and take the company private is reportedly stirring alarm among some Democrats. For example, when asked whether Musk's acquisition of Twitter was cause for concern, Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois said, quote, absolutely it does, unquote. So what is the big concern here with Musk owning Twitter? Well, again, we have the left-right split. I mean, the right wing, in other words, conservatives, Republicans here in America are happy that Elon Musk is teaching Twitter a lesson because in recent years, Twitter had actually thrown some people off the platform, including Donald Trump when he was president of the United States. Twitter was judging that there were too many lies being put on Twitter by some people. And so Republican conservatives say that Twitter was always unfair. Now Elon Musk, who's a libertarian and probably the wealthiest person on earth, has decided to buy the entire company. So conservatives are feeling great about that and liberals are feeling a bit of a slap. Musk is so interesting, of course, because he also founded and runs the electric car company Tesla and also SpaceX, which in recent weeks has repeatedly put astronauts up into space. Yes, he's certainly a visionary, but we also have to prepare for the possibility that he may actually back out of the deal. So there's some reporting on this, and we may know by the time this program airs whether this speculation, this reporting is correct. So it may be that he is just teasing or playing to purchase this company, because as we remember a couple of years ago, he said that he was going to buy this peanut brittle company to take on Warren Buffett's iconic C's candies. This is another candy in the United States. And then he changed his mind. So it could be that he may change his mind to buy Twitter and just pay the fee because the fee is like a billion dollars, which is nothing for Elon Musk should he renege from the deal. And he's been teasing a lot on Twitter as well. He's saying something like, next, I'm going to buy Coca-Cola so I can put the cocaine back into the drink. So we should prepare for the possibility that this may just be Elon Musk, a billionaire, trying to make a point. And what would be his point? His point would be that he is rich and he can do this and to create conversations to, as Dan said, show the division between left and right. But we'll see. I mean, that remains to be seen. And Possibly by the time this program airs, we'll know more about this. And just to give him credit, he says he stands for freedom of speech. And if Twitter was censoring or removing anyone, Musk says that's wrong. Okay, well, time will tell. And I just wanted to get a quick comment on Vice President Kamala Harris testing positive for COVID. Now, she is the highest ranking official in the White House to contract the virus. She is fully vaccinated against COVID and received her second booster shot earlier this month. The vice president's diagnosis comes amid an uptick in COVID cases in the U.S. in recent weeks, which in some areas appears to be driven by the new Omicron subvariant BA.2. So what is the White House saying about this ongoing battle with COVID, even at the highest ranks? So the sense that the White House is trying to convey to reporters is that, well, it happens. COVID is a pandemic. And this is something that Jen Psaki likes to say a lot, as I've experienced it twice over myself. As you know, she's been uh, infected twice with the virus. And so they're really trying to downplay the fact that the vice president finally caught the virus. They said that she's not showing any symptoms. She's just working from home. And so they're really preparing the American public for the possibility that President Joe Biden himself 
of May one day is infected with the virus. So the White House is really trying to straddle these two tracks, right? Number one, it's still a serious pandemic and we're doing a lot in terms of vaccination, in terms of making antivirals available, including Paxlovid, increasing access to this drug, making sure that people get boosted and all of that. But also on the other hand, saying that, hey, if it happens, as long as you are vaccinated and boosted, then it's probably something that you can live with. Now, of course, if it does happen to President Joe Biden, I think the stakes are much higher because, of, as you know, he's much older than the vice president. And even though the White House doctors always says that he is fit, he is still quite senior in terms of his age and would be considered a bigger risk. Well, it really is quite an age difference. President Biden is 79 years old. Vice President Kamala Harris is 57. But still, as a journalist, it just makes me wonder, is it still news when someone tests positive but isn't really very ill? And so I suppose, again, like you say, Patsy, health officials here in the U.S., they're trying to tell the public we have to learn to live with COVID. Don't panic. They do say everyone should get their vaccinations. The government says the vaccines are effective. And also just to know, you know, we at the White House, the reporters on the White House, we're all in there every day, a whole bunch of us. And then we get these announcements every couple of days from the White House Correspondents Association about somebody getting infected. And then we just have to live with it. Now, most of the people who come to the White House briefings, I would say maybe 50 percent of us still wear masks. I personally don't wear a mask because I have just recently gotten it. And I figured that, OK, you know, I'm, I'm just going to take my chances now that I should have some immunity and I'm boosted, but that's just a personal risk that everybody will have to take on their own. Thanks a lot for your comments, for your insights. This is a really great show, but we're going to have to close the show on that note. My thanks go out to our panelists, VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitaker-Zwara and Newsday columnist Dan Raviv. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Issues in the News.